Hey, if you want to open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, or flip on your iPhone, whichever's easier. That's where we're going to look tonight. We're just going to kind of skip like a stone across a couple chapters here in Genesis. I'm not really going to settle on any one passage. We're just going to look at like broad, broad themes in Genesis. It's incredibly important. Like just say as an aside, uh, Genesis is my favorite book in the Bible outside of the Gospels. It is, it is just my absolute favorite. It has, has everything in it. It's, it's rated R. Um, things happen in Genesis that are rated R. It's real people. I, I love the stories there, and um, there's so much for us to gather. And probably no other book in the whole Bible has been so like imprinted on my own life as the book of Genesis. And we're going to look just at a couple chapters this evening, and we're going to be looking at it because we want to pick up, uh, hopefully, some really practical stuff, some stuff that we can use just out of the first two chapters on what it means to be a creative person and then how to walk that call out. So uh, if you're already there, that's good. And the reason that we want to look at, uh, at Genesis, and specifically the reason we want to look at the first couple chapters in Genesis, is because Genesis, especially in the first bit there, it's of course, it's the creation, creation narrative. And if you've been in Sunday school even one time in your life, you probably know the creation narrative. It begins with, you know, and God spoke and there was light and Blah, 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 blah. One day, two day, three day, four day, five day, six day, seven day. He rested. Then he made, an- then he made the man. He took the man's rib and he made a woman. We all know that, right? But there's some really incredible stuff in there because I, I get really encouraged by the creation narrative. Uh, I-, I don't ever get bored with it. Every time I go back to it, I get something new. God shows me something new in it. Uh, it's, it's rich. It's dense. And one of the coolest things, and I, and I never realized this even until this year, it's something that, that never occurred to me. And it's one of the reasons that it's so encouraging to me is that the creation narrative, especially those first chapter and a half, two chapters, it's actually a poem. It's a song. It's really interesting. When you go and you read it by yourself, you'll pick up really quick that this is, this is a poem. There's this repetition. It's one of the, it's one of the keys, like in poetic language, is, is that you will use repetition in order to set a rhythm, right? Anybody who's ever read any literature knows this. And the first couple chapters of Genesis is actually a poem. And there's this rhythm, and it's a rhythm within the words. And the rhythm goes like this. And there was evening, and there was morning on the first day. And there was evening, and there was morning on the second day. And this rhythm, this keeps returning to it. And one of the things that we gather from it right away is that, is that it's poetic. Now, why does this matter? Well, the reason this matters is because <clears throat> a couple reasons. It goes a couple levels deep. The very first revelation that we get of God in all the Bible is that He's a creator. That's the first thing. But then not only that, but the Scripture itself contains for us the specific way, not only that God is a creator, but the way he chose to contain that message of I am a creator is a creative way. It's a poem. God didn't make a list. It's really important. This is a really big deal. You see, here's the deal. Most of us in the room are more familiar with God as savior than we are as God as creator. But the very first thing that he chose to say about himself is that he's a creator and he chose to do it in a poetic, creative way. What does that say about who the Lord is? The first revelation of who God is in the scripture is not savior. It is not friend. It is not father. It is not judge. Anything else we need to throw in there? It's none of those things. It's that he's a creator and that when he went about doing it, he went about doing uh, this creative message. He, he, he contained it in a poem. He, he contained it in writing. He contained it in a poem. And, and uh, you know, why is that important? Well, I don't want to be too, pres- too presumptuous, but I'd like to, I'd like to, at least presume a couple things. It, the reason it's really important for us is because it has to do with who he is as a person. It, has, it speaks to his personality. It speaks to the fact that he's an artist. And it speaks to the fact that, that anybody um, who has ever built anything. So, David, anyone who's ever built a house, right? And any mother who's ever made a cake knows something about how God is. He likes to build things. He likes to make things. And he's actually put that in into every person in this room. Every, everybody here likes to make, make stuff. And so it's one of the ways that we can grab a hold of who God is. So he, he, he comes to us in the scriptures. The very first revelation is that he is a creator, and it's contained not just in the, 
in the narrative itself, but in the way the narrative is spoken, it's a poem. And this is a really big deal because at the same time, even though God doesn't, doesn't uh, open up his book with, I'm a father or I'm a friend or I'm a judge or I'm a savior, he opens up with, I'm a creator. But at the same time, he doesn't lay aside any of those things. He doesn't lay aside, I'm a father. He doesn't lay aside, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a friend. He doesn't lay aside, I'm a savior. When he's picking up, I'm a creator. His creativity, his personality, who he is, actually enhances his ability to be a father, a friend, and a savior. Why is that important? The reason it's important, especially for creative people, is when we begin to endeavor in our hearts to be a creative person, we oftentimes have been fooled or tricked into believing that we have to lay down certain aspects of our personality or certain aspects of who we are or certain aspects of what comes naturally to us in order to pick up creativity. So what does that mean? It means that in order for me to pick up creativity, a lot of us in the room are believing the lie that I have to lay down my administrative personality. Right? We've been told that. Right? It's not true at all. So he didn't lay down any of those things. He chose to reveal it first. But he didn't lay down any of the other parts of who he is. First little bit of what I want to get into here is I want to, I want to point out just some of the things that the creative narrative tells us um, by way of, of subtle whisper. Okay? Subtle whispers. These are some of the subtle whispers in the creative narrative. Number one, God's creation... And God's creativeness encompasses all sorts of different fields, disciplines, and areas. What do I mean by that? Okay, so when God sets about creating, He creates He creates all the stars. And when He created all the stars, He created astronomy. He created the land and the seas. And when He created land and seas, He created the disciplines that go along with those. Then he creates creatures in the seas and he creates creatures on the land. And when he created creatures in the seas and on the land, he created biology. And then he created people and he created on and on and on. And this is one of the really cool things for me is that God's creativeness is a source for all areas of all kinds of areas, all kinds of disciplines and all kinds of areas of study. So his creation turns loose things like zoology. His his creation turns loose potentials for us like all the areas of science, all astronomy, all biology. What does that mean? Well oftentimes we believe that creative people aren't necessarily the scientific. And one of the things we pick up right away from the creative narrative is that you can be incredibly scientific-minded. You can be a math person, and you can still be creative. Not only that, but it's going to take high levels of creativity to have a breakthrough in that field. We, We need to recapture that because... A lot of times we tend to push certain personality types and certain fields out of the creativity conversation that actually need to be brought back in. So that's one area, all the sciences. Not only that, but um, one of the other things that is subtly whispered in the creation account is that God is, is a designer and he's a specialist in color and he's a master arranger. Okay? God is a designer, he's a specialist in color, color and he's a master arranger. And, and at this point we sort of bring in all of the things that we typically think of when we, when we come to the subject of creativity. We t- we're going to bring in all the artists at this point. All of the, in, here's the interior design, uh, landscape architecture, architecture. God is, God is the first person who, who ever arranged anything. God's the first person who ever designed anything. And he's absolute master of color. And we see this, we see this especially in the arts. Uh, I, I love the arts. It's, it's just sort of in me. And uh, I remember the first time that I went to a real museum. I was, uh, I was, it was a little bit later in life because I just, for a big portion of my life, I was just sort of stuck here in Kentucky and never really got out. And then one day, my wife and I, we went to uh, the, the Art Institute in Chicago and I laid my eyes on the, f- the first Vincent Van Gogh painting I ever saw in person. It changed my life. I cried a little bit when I came into the room because it's so striking. Why is it so striking? Well, I've seen, since then, I've seen 
thousands of paintings. I've never to this day seen anyone from any time period of painting who used color like Vincent van Gogh. Uh, you guys, have you guys ever seen his little painting, maybe in a textbook, uh, of his bedroom, you know, with the little bed and, and like the bathroom doors kind of open with the yellow light and the blue? Uh, it's arresting. In fact, that, that painting is in the Art Institute in Chicago, and it's in a room about half this size, and the room is filled with other paintings, and as soon as you walk in, you will, you, your eye immediately goes to the right wall where Vincent van Gogh's bedroom painting is on. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. Every time I go to the Art Institute or any, any, um, any museum like that, I typically, every single time, and some of this is just personality to me, uh, but 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 some of it's actually a, a bigger narrative. It's about people and it's about like just gifting and abilities that are in their life. Uh, I am always drawn to uh, Vincent Van Gogh paintings, even if I don't know that he painted them. Like the color just grabs me, and then the next thing I know, I find out he painted it. And H- Henry Matisse. These guys were incredible with color. And so it's one of the things that's subtly woven into the creative narrative is that God is a master arranger. He's a designer and he's a specialist. In color. So we have the sciences. They're subtly in the creation narrative. We have the arts and the design. That's subtly in the creation narrative. But not only that, but um, when God set about creating the world and when He set about chronicling it, wow, that was a hard word. Chronicling. 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 Thank you. But when He set about telling the story, he did it in a narrative fashion. And when he did it, what he brought in was he brought in all of the storytelling and he brought in all writing and he brought in music and he brought in poetry. And it's one of the, one of the stunning things about the scripture uh, at, at large is that it's this very long story about God and man and man and God. And it is told in so many different ways. It's really startling to me. It's told in so many different ways. So when you pick up the Bible, you can pick up, uh, you can pick up history books like Judges. You can pick up poetry like Proverbs and Psalms. You can pick up uh, prophetic books like Isaiah. And you can pick up uh, other prophetic books like Daniel and Revelation. You can pick up just like narrative storytelling like the Gospels. In the New Testament, there are letters. And so what we have is God has this, he has this thing about stories. And he wants to tell his story. And then when he did tell his story, he told it with all kinds of different people. And he didn't limit anyone to telling it in any certain fashion. He allowed them to tell it in all different sorts of ways. So he has a narrative and he tells it in all sorts of ways. And, and I just want to take a side note here. And I want to talk about uh, some of the prophetic literature in, in, the, in the Scripture. It's really interesting to me um, that there is prophetic literature. So as Christians, we have this rich tradition of prophetic literature. Uh, almost, it's really unique. I mean, it's not completely unique in all the world's religions, but it's really unique in the depth and the richness of it. And uh, here at the Vineyard, we, we want to be a prophetic community, and we endeavor to be that. Uh, here at the Vineyard, we endeavor to release people in their prophetic gifting. Here at the Vineyard, we, we endeavor to release people beyond just their prophetic gifting, but we, we endeavor to release capital P prophets. Uh, that's in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 4. We endeavor to release this, these people because it's such an encouragement to the church. But one of the things that we have oftentimes done, not just here, but in the charismatic church, is we have so shrunk what it means to be a prophetic person or what it means to be a prophet or what it means to be like a gift of encouragement to the local body. One of the things you realize when you read the scripture at all is that all the main player prophets, they were all incredibly smart, they were all incredibly studied, and they were all writers. Isaiah was a writer. We wouldn't even know what he did unless he wrote it down. So there's this intermingling of creativity and God's prophetic gifts that he puts inside of people. There's a couple other prophets that are in the Bible, uh, particularly the two who ministered to David, uh, Gad and Nathan. Anybody know what Gad and Nathan ever said? No, not really, right? We got that one little moment when, when Nathan comes in and tells David a story about a sheep, right? Even then, he's beginning to tell him a prophetic story in a creative way, which is interesting to me. But we know very little about them. Why do we know very little about them? Because they weren't writers. So you can be a prophetic person. You can be a writer. 
You can be a prophetic person who never stands up, holds a microphone, and give a prophetic word to anyone. In fact, one of my favorite artists is this Yugoslavian woman. Her name is Marina Abramovich. She's a performance artist, which makes her really strange. To my knowledge, she's not a believer, and she happens to be in some ways more prophetic than most believers, as is the case oftentimes. Uh, Marina Abramovich, she is, um, she's been doing performance art. She doesn't do it so much now. She's a bit older. Uh, but she has been doing performance art for going on 40 years. And in 1997, she did one of her most famous pieces of performance art. And it was called, uh, it was, I'll have to look and see here. It was called the Balkan Baroque. And this is what this piece was. It was a live performance piece. It, to my knowledge, was not videoed. Uh, there have been some reenactments, but the reenactments don't have the power. I've seen photographs of her performance. It's really striking and it's really disturbing. Here was her performance. She was in a basement, in a dark basement, and she was sitting on a huge, massive pile of cow bones that had flesh on them. And for three days straight, she sat on top of cow bones with rotting flesh. The whole place stunk. People couldn't hardly go in there to even photograph it. And for three days, she sat on top of rotting cow bones with flesh, and she had a knife, and she scraped the flesh off of these cow bones, and she sang Yugoslavian traditional uh, kids' and children's songs. She sang it while she scraped the flesh off, and then after she would finish a song, she would weep. And it wasn't fake weeping. It was weeping, and she did this for three days, and that was the performance. And it was, and there were flies, and there were rats, and it stunk, and it was awful. And what does this have to do with creativity or prophetic? What it has to do with creativity and prophetic is that she was making a prophetic statement, even though she wouldn't say it that way. She was making a statement, and it was power, that basically this was the statement, that people who saw this performance, people who visited, and people who have seen the photographs are more horrified by her performance. They're more horrified by her sitting on a pile of cow bones, scraping the flesh off and weeping, than they were about her own country's uh, war that was happening at the time and the fact that actual human beings were actually being killed. Make sense? Incredibly powerful. See, we can, we can be prophetic people who are, who are creative and you may never hold the microphone, you may never give a prophetic word, you, 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 know, you may do something completely out there. I mean, after all, Ezekiel laid on his side for three and a half years. Ezekiel cooked his food over cow poop. He was a prophet. You know, we, we, we have these boxes. Y'all flowing with me here? So God's creativity, there's room in there for science minds. There's room in there for biologists. There's room in there for designers and painters. There's room in there for storytellers. There's even room in there for prophetic storytellers. There's room in there for writers. There's room in there for performance art. And there's also room in there for administration and organization. People who have gifts of, of administration and organization. See, a lot of times we exclude people who have gifts of administration and organization and people who have gifts of numbers. We exclude them from this conversation because it doesn't fit the mold. And one of the things I want to tell you is if you begin to look at the creation narrative even a little bit, it absolutely perfectly fits the mold. How do I know that? Well, I pick it up from a couple ways. Number one is... Um, when you look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, it says that the earth was formless and void. Some of your translations say chaos and confusion. And one of the things that we see is that the Spirit of God hovers over chaos and confusion and begins to bring order, right? That's a gift of administration and gift of order. Not only that, but then after the Spirit of God began to hover over chaos and confusion and bring order, we see that on day one, God did something. And then on day two, He did something. And then on day three, He did something. And then on day four, He did something. That He had a plan, and that it was measured, and that it was ordered, and that it was constructed, and there was strategy. So one of the things that we see right away is that we can't exclude people with gifts of administration and people with gifts of order and gifts of numbers and strategy from the conversation of creativity. It actually goes hand in hand. Not only that, but one of the things I'm learning, uh, especially the older I get, is that the gift of administration is one of the most important gifts possible. You will do nothing significant apart from a gift of administration, either coming out of your life or someone partnering with you who has it. Gifts of administration are one of the most important 
one of the most important gifts. A lot of us have grown up with, uh, uh, maybe you took the, you know, the spiritual gift test, you got administration and you were bummed. I want to tell you, you are, I want to know you, you know. I know plenty of prophetic people. Please send me an administrator. Please. Please. Not only that, but it's a sign of, it's a sign of, it's actually a sign of maturity as well. And when you, when you look at the scripture, we can see this as well. We see it in the life of Moses. Moses was a stuttering sheep herder. And then he became a stuttering sheep herder who was anointed with signs and wonders. He would throw his staff down. It would turn into a snake. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? I think it's incredible. And then he could pick it up and it's back to staff. Snake, staff, snake, staff. So stuttering sheep herder to signs and wonders anointed, stuttering staff, snake handling guy. Walking through an ocean on dry land, that guy. But then a few years later, what we see is the longer that Moses walks with the Lord, he becomes more and more of an administrator. And by the time you get to Exodus chapter 18, Moses is hanging out with his father-in-law. Andrew preached an incredible sermon on this. He's hanging out with his father-in-law Jethro, and he's setting into place 70 elders to help him judge in Israel. We don't just see it with Moses, but we also see it with Joseph. Joseph is a dreamer, and he's the guy who says the first thing on his mind. So he has this dream. Y'all remember some of Joseph's dreams? Joseph's dreams are, hey, I sighted this dream last night, and I dreamed that... 11 stars, and not only that, but uh, the sun and the moon came and bowed down to me. He has the dream that night. He gets up in the morning and he goes and tells his mother and father and his 11 brothers. Y'all remember that? Tells me a lot about Joseph. He's young, he's impetuous. And what's really funny about that is, immediately everybody at the table knows what he's talking about. They know that he has called them out which is striking how much different our cultures are. Now someone has a dream, they come to me and it's like, Man, I had this dream last night. I felt like it was from the Lord, but I have no idea what it means. Back then, you have a dream, everybody knows what it means. Not only that, but Joseph knew what it meant. And he was, he was telling them, you guys are going to come and bow down to me. It's incredibly hilarious, right? So he's young, he's, a, he's prophetic, he's a dreamer, and he's stupid. <laughs> and it gets him in a pit. But then he goes to prison, and he becomes excellent. He's a dream interpreter, and then he ends up being in charge of the most powerful country in all the earth as an administrator, and God's provision for an entire people group comes through the administrator. It's the same thing with Joshua. Joshua is a powerful military leader. He was anointed to take land, and by the end of his life, he grows in administration, and Joshua is the guy who's dividing the land and parsing it up and giving it to people. So we can't discount organizational people from the creative conversation. We can't discount the administrators. They have to be included. Nothing significant will be done without the administrators. All right. So that was sort of like, I just want to get that out there. So I hope everybody here realizes that everyone here is a creative person. Like, you fit into one of those categories somehow. You just do. So now I want to get into really the thrust of of, of my message, which is, uh, having a vision for for creativity, uh, one that we can we can use in our own life, one that we can put to uh, put to good use. Either whether we're artists, whether we're musicians, whether we're science people, whether we're administrative people, whether we're number people, whether we're mothers, teachers, you know, just whatever you are. And we see a really incredible picture for implementing creativity. Uh, from the first couple chapters of Genesis. And the first step in creativity, or at least the first step, step that we see, is we see that God creates, and but God creates in a specific way. He creates by speaking, right? God said, let there be light, and there was light. Let there be light, and there was light. <clears throat> this is really, really, really important for us. We have to grab a hold of this. The reason we need to grab a hold of this is because the truth of the matter is, Words create worlds. Words open up possibilities that were otherwise locked. And we all kind of instinctively know this. And in fact, we have a, we have a rich history of, of, like, of, of, of wisdom and of these little quotable quotes and maxims 
that really follow this line that words create worlds, that words are powerful, that words change moments. How many of you guys have heard of this? The pen is mightier than the sword. Which is probably just one of those things that, that, w- that was developed over the last 2,000 years. And it was probably a play on Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Anybody know that word? The word of God is living and active and it's sharper than t- any two-edged sword. But the, we have these little maxims, things like the pen is mightier than the sword. Not only that, I, I read this a couple days ago and I thought it was really incredible. This was written by Thomas Jefferson to Thomas Paine. So like founding fathers type stuff. Thomas Jefferson writes to, to Thomas Paine. He says, he says, you should go on in doing with your pen what others in other times have done with the sword. Show that reformation is more practicable by operation on the mind than the body of a man. That's a pretty good word. Not only that, but we all know that words are powerful, and we know that words are powerful in our own experience. How many of you guys have ever been wounded by words? Like, really bad. Right? How many of you guys have ever had an entire aspect of who you are shut down by someone's words? How many of you have ever had an entire aspect of who you are shut down for years because of what someone said to you? Tell me words are not powerful. Conversely, how many of you have ever been completely and thoroughly, utterly changed by encouragement? Like forever in your life. I have been absolutely, thoroughly and completely changed in certain aspects and components of my life just from the prophetic ministry. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3 says that Prophecy is for edification, exhortation, and comfort. I have been absolutely changed by people with a prophetic gift coming and speaking. Just God's encouragement, God's heart over me. Changed my life. When um, I was about 17 or 18, I went to... um, I'd never experienced personal prophetic ministry in this sort of way. Um, I I went to uh, Morningstar with my father-in-law and... Uh, Morningstar at that time, they had these uh, prophetic booths. That's all I can tell you. It's really strange, little prophetic booths. There's a room, maybe three times the size of this room. And But on the edges of the room, there were all these little cubicles that were numbered. And then after the meeting, you could go up. If you were a visitor, you could get a number. And then you'd go to that cubicle. And then there was a team of three people in there. And when you came in, they didn't let you tell them anything about you. They just wanted to know your name. And I, it was very odd. And I, I went in mostly out of curiosity. And as soon as I went in, um, I was immediately at a certain level deflated because it was two like 75-year-old women and a 12-year-old girl. And I thought, oh, man, these, are go- these people are no good. <laughs> you know how it is. You think you need like the man of God with a microphone, you know? We all do. We're all like that. But anyway, so they sat down and they said, hey, we only want to know your name. I said, well, I'm Adam. And they said, great. They prayed maybe 30 seconds. And then the older looking woman of the two, she looks right at me and she says, well, Adam, here's what the Lord says to me. This is what I feel like. She's like, I just feel like, I feel like you're a musician in the house of the Lord. And he's put, it's like, it's really near to me even now. See, it changes you. You carry this stuff around. But she said, yeah, she goes, she goes, I see the song of the Lord in your life and I see the song of David on your life. And um, then she just, I can't even go there anymore, but I remember it all. And she prophesied to me. It was really the first time I was ever really prophesied like that. I, I was prophesied to earlier when I was five years old, very similar thing. And she prophesied this thing to me about David and song and music and writing. And, and she prophesied to me about she prophesied to me about um, leading a bunch of losers out of the cave, which is in First Samuel. And I got completely whacked. 
In fact, I fell out of my chair. It's really embarrassing for a 17-year-old boy to fall out of your chair in front of women and girls. <laughs> and I, I, just, I just sort of completely lost it. But there's power in words. It was already there. I knew it was there. It was like the longing of my heart. Some of my earliest memories as a child, I, I, I can't really remember much about my childhood, but the parts I can remember, I, I can remember always, 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 always wanting a guitar. Always. I felt the song like I can't remember not feeling the song. And then she just called it out. And from that time forward is when I really began to write songs. It's power in words. We've been wounded by words, but at the same time, we've been completely changed by words. I'll tell you another funny story. Um, there's, a, there's a prophetic guy. Some of you guys might know him. His name is Larry Randolph. And he was doing a meeting in Nashville at the Nashville Vineyard back in the day. And I went, and I'm sitting mostly in the back, and I'm sitting with uh, Josh Tucker, the red-bearded guy who was playing guitar this morning. I'm sitting right next to Josh. I'm sitting with our good friend Joseph Hurchin, and I'm sitting with my sister. It's the four of us sitting there. And Larry is speaking, and he's a really funny person, and he's, he's sort of a strange prophetic guy. And Joe Hurchin is sitting in the chair next to me, mocking him from the back. If you know Joe, you know what I'm talking about. And Joe's like, this is fake. This is complete fake. Okay? So Larry, doesn't, he doesn't know that Joe's mocking him because Joe's being quiet. We're laughing or whatever. I'm, in my head, I'm going, I don't know if this is fake or not, Joe. I mean, That's kind of what I'm thinking. Larry's like, hey, you four, come on up here. So we come up front. And Joe comes up with us. And Larry looks at us and goes, you guys are a band. And he looks right at Joe and he goes, you're the drummer. And he looks at Josh and goes, you're the guitar player. And he looks at me and he goes, you're the singer. And he looks at my sister and goes, you're supposed to sing. And he goes, and you're, he looks back at me and goes, you're supposed to write the music. And blah, 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 blah. Next thing I know, Joe's in the floor. Yeah, we need that because words create worlds. That's how the planet got here. You want to create something? You create it by speaking it. It's one of the main aspects of, of creativity. We also know it's true just, just in American history. Like, have you guys ever listened to the speeches of Martin Luther King? Like, I occasionally listen to him because I want to be a better, a better preacher. I'm not really preaching tonight. I'm just trying to share my story a little bit. But I occasionally listen to him just because I want to be a better preacher. But he's a guy who literally, with words, create, created a reality that up to that point was not real. Cost him his own life, but it could have cost a lot of people their lives, and it didn't. It's one of the remarkable things. It was one of those explosive moments in American history that, that could have been another civil war, not unlike the civil war that had happened 100 years previous. And it didn't. It only costed him his life. It's really remarkable. Words, words create worlds. And we sometimes, we sometimes put this simple and obvious truth that the Scripture is obvious showing obviously showing in the first two chapters of Genesis, we sometimes put it into a compartment and we never use it because we assume that it's simply God's prerogative. We assume that to create words with worlds, to create worlds with words, we assume that's, that's something that only rests with God. We assume that's something that only He can do. We assume that's completely up to Him. And when we assume that, we assume incorrectly and we actually step out of a huge portion of our identity and we, we take a huge step back from any potential to create anything. The reason that we do is because, you can underline this, we're not going to look at that right now. You can just write this down. The reason that we, that we compartmentalize this and take a huge step back is because, um, because we were actually made in God's image. And that's not just poetic, fluffy language, it's actually the truth. So when God made man and woman, He made us like Him. He made us so much like him that before Adam and Eve fell in sin, when they walked through the garden, the plants and the animals would have to do a double take because they would, at first sight, they would think it might be God. There was so much glory in them. 
And there's something, there's something about our words. They really do carry words, carry power. They, do, they, they carry worlds, and they carry the power to create. And we were created to create. Like, you won't be happy until you're creating. Any of you ever noticed that compulsive shoppers are the most miserable people? Think about it. Compulsive shoppers, every compulsive shopper I've ever met is a sad person. Why? Because you weren't created to consume, you were created to create. You were made to produce. And one of the main ways that we're created to produce and to create is we're created to create with our words. God has still honored words. The scripture says there's life and death, right? In the tongue. I find this very interesting that most of the inventions and most of the technology that we enjoy right now was prophesied in science fiction books. Like this was in somebody's brain in a science fiction book 40 years before it ever really happened. Everything that was on Star Trek prophesied into the future what we now live in. That's the reason that you watch Star Trek now. It's ridiculous. It's like we live in a moment that's better than what they anticipated. It's really something else. But uh, this concept of like bioenergy, you know, it's sort of a big thing right now. Bioenergy, you know, green planet. Like bioenergy was a concept that was first written about in Gulliver, Gulliver's Travels. I read about it today. It was incredible. Gulliver's Travels. Jonathan Swift, back in the day. Atomic bombs. H.G. Wells, he wrote about those in 1910 in a a book called The World Set Free. Before anyone had even thought about it, he wrote about it. So he ends up prophesying into the future. So there's this whole aspect of creativity and it has to do with speaking. It has to do with words. It has to do with power that God has put inside that. But how many of you realize that you don't speak words without first considering what you're about to say? So words don't come out of thin air. And most of the times, the words that do come out of thin air are the ones that you wish you hadn't spoken. Right? So there's an implied message. There's an implied message in the first two chapters of Genesis. And the implied message is, in order to be a creative person, you have to be a dreamer. You have to be a dreamer. Words are not fashioned out of thin air. Words come from the consideration of the heart and mind. And dreams give occasion to words, and they give a space for words to be. See, God is the original dreamer. And when he spoke creation into being, what he was actually doing is he was speaking the considerations of his own heart into reality. The reason I know this is because at the very beginning of the book of Jeremiah, he, the, the God tells Jeremiah, before you were formed in your mother's womb, what? I knew you. How did he know him? Were they sitting in heaven having a party? I don't think they were. I think when God says, before you were fashioned in your mother's womb, I knew you. I think what he was saying is, I've dreamt about you. And so, every star and every planet was a dream. Sea and land was a dream. And you and I were a dream. So in order to be a creative person, in order to have something to speak, the most fundamental aspect of what it means to be a creative person is it means you must be a dreamer. And it's one of the things that the church is sorely lacking in, is dreamers. God's the original dreamer. You want to be like God? Begin to dream a dream. When we're we're growing up, the daydreamers tend to get written off. People with amusing spirit tend to get set aside. But I want to tell you as the pastor of the vineyard that being a daydreamer and being a muser and being a person who can get caught up in like secret desire, it's not wasted time at all. If you ever want to do anything great in your life, you have to be a dreamer. You have to be a daydreamer. You have to be a muser. You have to have, you have, to have a, a spot, a moment, a space in your life where you can... Where you can 
Just let the desire of your heart percolate through your whole through your whole being, spirit and mind, all of it. It's not childish, it's actually like God. See, we, we, we can never let go of our secret desires. If you let go of your secret desires, you let go of your tomorrow. There's one question that every creative person, and since we're all creative, there's one question that every single person in the vineyard and every single person who's alive needs to carry around with them all the time, and it's the question, what's next? It's a question I never let go of. What's next? And when we carry around the question, what's next, we're not carrying around we're not carrying around the expressions of a disquieted, chaotic heart. We're carrying around the manifestation of curiosity and desire. I've got some teaching on desire I'm not going to go into tonight, but it's a really big deal of the Lord. See, here's the deal. It's perfectly legal to daydream. It's perfectly legal to muse about more. It's perfectly okay to wonder what's next. See, the church should be a nursery for dreamers. The church should be a guild of musers. When we begin to muse upon what's next, when we begin to give our heart and our mind and our spirit to what's next, what we're actually doing is we're opening up a door in our own life for God to begin to speak to us, begin to show us the order of heaven so that we can establish the order and the beauty of heaven here. That's what creativity is really about. It's about, it's about establishing order and beauty. All real creativity is about establishing order and beauty. And sometime in the process of establishing order and beauty, sometimes it's required that we tell just we just tell the truth about how things really are. You don't always have to put a positive spin on it. So now I want to put it together for us a little bit. There's three basic steps to living out a creative call. Number one, it's to be a dreamer. You need to give yourself the space and you need to allow yourself the opportunity to dream. Things that other people's words have killed in you, you need to resurrect it. You need to give yourself to it. You need to dwell on it. You need to muse on it. You need to roll it around. You need to visualize it. Uh, Listen, every great athlete, they visualize themselves being successful on the field. There's a reason they do it, because it helps. Uh, one One of the declarations of the scripture is set your mind on things above. Uh, we can pluck that out of context, and I think we do no, do no disservice to the Scripture. But part of what setting, your, what, part of what setting your mind on things above is about, it's about dreaming. It's about, it's about allowing the thing that you know, that you know, that you know in the center of your being that you're actually called to do, but you actually probably can't do unless God becomes an active partner in your life. It's about visualizing that. See, here's the deal. I have daydreamt about daydreamt i have daydreamt about i have daydreamt about leading worship in front of people more than i've actually led worship in front of people i have i have i have spent more time daydreaming about preaching in front of crowds than i have actually preaching in front of crowds i have spent more time daydreaming about laying my hands on sick people and seeing blind eyes open than i have actually seeing blind eyes open it's where it starts. It's, if you can't dream it, you'll never see it. If you can't see it, you'll never be it. So the first step is we, we become dreamers. We're allowed to dream. We're allowed to dream big things. We're allowed to dream the kind of things that cannot be done unless God becomes an active partner in our life. That's how big the dream has to be. Dreaming any less big than that means you're only committed to what you can do in your own strength. which is actually not God's call at all on your life. It's actually just your own, the one you made up. 
So it's about allowing ourselves to dream big. It's about allowing ourselves to dream bigger. It's about allowing ourselves the space, the time, um, the emotional place to dream big with God. Then it's also about beginning to speak it. So after we begin to dream it, the second part is incredibly important, and it is the part where we have to begin to speak it. You might want to prophesy it over yourself. I do this all the time. I prophesy stuff over myself in the shower. I go out on my front porch with a cup of coffee in the morning while it's still foggy around my vineyard, and I just begin to declare the goodness of God, the things I know He's called me. I just start declaring them just so that my own ears can hear it. I want to vibrate. I want my whole body and my whole being, spirit and soul and body to vibrate with the word of God, the one that I know that I've gotten, the promise that I've gotten from him. I just begin to speak it. Not only that, but there's other ways to speak it as well. And it has less to do with being like an obnoxious prophetic type who just makes people mad. And it has more to do with just beginning to tell people the intention of your heart. And that's incredibly important. It's so important that we begin to tell people what we want to do. What we want to do. So we dream it, we speak it, and then we begin to do it. And I've told this story a couple of times, but I think it bears repeating. When, I was, uh, when Heather and I were first married, we drove by this piece of property. And we looked at it, and we began to dream about owning it. But it, se- it seemed like out of our reach. Somehow we ended up buying it. And then once we bought the property, she and I began to dream about the house. And then we began to talk about the house that we were going to build. And then we built the house. Creativity. You dream it. See, I've lived in my house for 30 some years. I'm 33 years old. I've lived in my house that I live in right now. I've lived in it for 33 years. It's only been built five. I dreamed it. Then I talked about it. I wore people out talking about it. You'll know a man's about to build a house when he begins to wear out all of his friends talking about it. So you dream it. And then you speak it. You speak it over yourself. You, you just tell the story. And then you begin to put it into action. And action is a really, really big deal. We've already talked about this a little bit. But see, human beings were created to produce. We were, we were created to produce. God looks at, at, uh, at Adam and Eve and he says a couple of really great things. He blesses them and then he says, be fruitful and multiply. It's the first blessing. The blessing of being a human being has to do centrally with being a producer. I just want to say this right now. It has to do with being a producer. You are not a man until you are a producer. If you are strictly a consumer, you are not a full person. You're called, to, you're called to add something to the system. You're called to add to the community. You're called to be a blessing. You're called to be a, a producer. One of the scourges on the modern age is that most people live an entitled life where they just want to consume for themselves and they get so aggravated when anyone gets in their way of being able to consume for themselves and they wonder why they're so miserable. And like I've already said, compulsive shoppers are the most miserable people I know. They produce nothing. Am I saying there's anything wrong with going to the mall? Of course not. I love going to the mall. You should see how many shoes I have. But one of the things I've noticed after 33 years is I never come home from the mall happy. Never makes me happy. I'll tell you a magical day. A magical day for me is when I finish the song. I'm a different person. That's a magical day, you know? Magical day. Uh, a magical day for me was when my children were born, put something good into the planet. I'll never forget that. Are you kidding me? When River was born, I, I, I nearly passed out. From, just from the trauma of the moment, I'm not really a blood person. But then just the, the gravity of the moment, just the gravity, that's, that's, it's, there's nothing like it called to be a producer action is important it's so 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 important four reasons why action is important and then we'll be done the first reason that action is important is because that's what it's all about it's about seeing heaven come to earth the second reason that action is so important is because hard messy and draining 
is actually fulfilling. Action is hard, it's messy, it's draining, but it's actually fulfilling. It's like consummation. I'll leave it right there. But it produces something that fulfills at such deep levels. I'll go back to my house. Like I told you, I I dreamt about it 33 years. It's only been built five years. It's so fulfilling to me, this thing, this ideal. I mean, are you kidding me? I live in a white farmhouse with a porch on every single side, and it's surrounded by a vineyard on rolling Kentucky green hills. It's so fulfilling to me that when Heather and I go on vacation, we oftentimes arrive and we're a little bit disappointed because we look at each other and we say this almost every time. It's nice. It's better at home. can't tell you how many times I've said that in the last five years. It's better at home. And I can't afford a hotel room that's nicer than my house yet. You know? Florida's cool. The Holiday Inn, it isn't as nice as my house. My shower's better than this shower. My couch is cozier than this couch. My view is as good or better than this view. It fulfills something on the inside. Before I became a pastor, I spent <clears throat> I spent all of my youth and a good portion of my 20s up to about my mid 20s uh, working in landscaping. It was incredibly hard, hard work. It's really, really hard work. I I don't know work day to day that's as hard as landscaping. Like cutting tobacco is really, really hard work. I've done it. But you only cut tobacco like five days in a row and then it's all cut and hung up at the barn. Landscaping never stops. Like you just go from one job to the next hard job. And you know what? I never, ever, ever, ever didn't like my job in landscaping. Why? Because it, it's fulfilling. You show up, it looks like crap. You leave, it's incredible. That, that thing, it's so important. It's where happiness is. It's where joy is. It's, it's, it fulfills something. So number one, it's what life's about. Seeing heaven come to earth. Number two, action is hard. It's messy. It's draining. But it's also fulfilling. And then number three, action and work are fundamental parts of human existence. They're fundamental parts of human existence. We shouldn't run from work we shouldn't run from work, even though we, li- we live in a culture that's absolutely scared to death of anything that's hard. Here's the thing, though. Hard is where you find the treasure. We live in a culture that's afraid of hard, but the truth of the matter is, hard is where you find the treasure. Gold is buried beneath rocks and rubbles. It takes a great deal of equipment. It takes a great deal of effort, and it creates a great deal of investment in order to get it out of the mountain. See, here's the deal. If it's valuable, it's going to be hard. Easy is just another synonym for worthless. Let that one sit on your head for a minute. Easy is another synonym for worthless. No one in here was called to easy. Everyone in here is called to hard. And that's a good thing. You want hard, okay? You want difficult. I know you think you don't. Don't. We got to change our mind. We want hard. We want difficult. I'm not necessarily talking about loss either. I'm not talking about losing a parent. I'm not talking about losing people early. I'm not talking about that kind of talk. I'm talking about you want opposition in your life. Okay? You want to have a dream that's so big that it'll be opposed. You want to have a dream that's so big that some people try to get in your way. You want to have a dream that not everyone's going to fall in line with right away. You want hard. You want difficult because hard and difficult are always connected to treasure. Always. If it's easy, then everybody will be doing it. If everyone will be doing it, it's not worth anything. You want hard. You want difficult. Creativity that's, that's disconnected from, from those kinds of thought processes is creativity that leads to nothing valuable. You want effort in your life. You want a dream that's so big it might take your whole 85 years to complete it. You want a dream that's so big that you might not even finish it. 
See, that's what I'm asking the Lord for. I'm asking the Lord for, God, would you give me a dream that I might not be able even to complete? I want a Hebrews 11 kind of dream. I want a Hebrews 11 kind of promise. Hebrews 11 talks about everyone got a promise, but not everyone saw the promise. I want that kind of promise on my life. If it's the kind of thing that can be done in a year, it's probably not very valuable. If it's the kind of thing that I can just run out to Walmart and buy, it's probably junk. Ask yourself this, do you really need a day off? Do you really need a day off? The truth is, in the long run, you really do need a day off. But what I'm really getting at is, is what you're called to, is what you're doing right now, so enveloping your life, is it so taxing, is it so, is it requiring so much effort that you absolutely, positively must have a day off? If it's not, you need to get a new something. See, God said about the work of creation, and then on the seventh day, he rested. Why did he rest? I think he needed to. Am I saying that God got tired? No, but I think he needed to. How does that work theologically? I have no idea, but it's in the book. And I don't just think he was modeling what's good for us either. I think he had a dream that was so big, he put so much of himself into it. How can a limitless God put so much of himself into it that he needed a day off? I don't know. I don't know how to work that theology out. I'm not going to write a book about it. But I can tell you this. One of the things that, that it does communicate to you and I is that we need a call and we need a dream. We need to cap a, capture a glimpse of heaven that is so big that it takes all of our energies and all of our effort. And then by the end of six days, we absolutely must have a day off just to recover and recoup. So number one, action is important because that's what life's about. Number two, action is hard and messy, but it's also fulfilling. Number three, action and work are fundamental parts of human existence. We shouldn't run from work. We shouldn't run from hard. We should run towards it. And then number four, there's a communal aspect. Every open door is an open door to the next open door. What do I mean? Every new thing puts into play potential for more new things. There's a domino effect when it comes to newness, and there's a domino effect when it comes to creativity, and there's a domino effect when it comes to ingenuity. You can almost never jump the domino. Each of them have to fall. What do I mean? There were horses, and then there were carriages, and then there was a Model T, and then there's the Mercedes C-Class. Do you guys see this? You don't go from horses to Mercedes C-Class. Why is it important? Why is it important that Stephen is in action on his dream? Because when Stephen begins to fulfill his dream and begins to make it a reality, Stephen didn't just make his dream a reality. He actually opened up a portal for the next thing. You can't jump the dominoes. You can't go from a horse to a C-class. Some of you guys in here are called to go from the horse to the carriage. And, and we need you to go from the horse to the carriage. If not me, then my children need you to go from the horse to the carriage so they can go from the carriage to the Model T. We need it. We absolutely need it. Every new thing is an opportunity for another new thing. And that's how innovation happens. And uh, I'm a bit of an art history nerd. And we see it in art history as well. Uh, one of my favorite painters is this guy named Jackson Pollock, right? And Jackson Pollock's the splatter guy, right? He gets his paint out and he gets his giant canvases out and he walks around them and he splatters paint on 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 the, the canvas and everyone who sees a jackson pollock painting says the same thing right go ahead say it i could do that the real question is have you ever done that have you would you have done it if you hadn't seen jackson pollock do it first no You wouldn't. Every open door is an opportunity for another open door. And in fact, Jackson Pollock's wife, who put up with a lot, her name was Lee Kranzner. And you guys should look at this, because you can do it in two seconds on Google. Just Google Lee Kranzner, Jackson Pollock's wife, and look at her artwork. She was an artist. 
And look at the artwork that she did before they met. And tell me where Jackson Pollock, either consciously or subconsciously, got the ideas for what he did. Got it from his wife. You can see his work and her work. She inspired him. It may have been consciously, it may have been subconsciously, but it came through. People splatter paint on canvas all the time anymore. You know what it means? Nothing. But when Jackson Pollock did it, it opened up a new world. And people bashed him, you all. They absolutely bashed him. They told him he was an idiot. They told him he was a kindergartner, and he absolutely wasn't. Because I don't know if you've realized this or not, but perhaps you have splattered paint on a canvas. But you and I, we can splatter paint on canvas all day long, and it doesn't look like Jackson Pollock. The first time I stood in front of a Jackson Pollock, I... It felt like I was in a daydream. It was incredible. I've seen lots of people try to copy it. It doesn't work. But the awesome thing is he opened up a door that he had actually walked through with his wife. Number four, it's the communal aspect. Every new thing opens door for the next new thing. When you begin to walk out your dream, when you begin to make your invisible, hidden, secret, personal dream a reality, what you're actually doing at an invisible, subconscious, subterranean spirit level is you're giving permission to everyone else. And that's a really big thing. We've really hugely failed on that in the church is that we're not permission givers. And it's one of the main calls to the church is to give people permission to do the thing that's in their heart. If you don't do your thing, then there's a whole host of people, perhaps an entire generation, who'll never have permission to go and do their thing. Amen? Amen? Amen. Well, Hannah, why don't you just turn that off?